Hello, and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest is John Alterman. He's a senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, where he holds as a big new Brzezinski chair in global security and geostrategy and is director of the Middle East program. Our conversation today focuses on a decade of U.S. policies in the Middle East from 2010 to 2020, from President Obama to President Trump. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It'll be a challenge to pack 10 years of U.S. foreign policy in MENA into a 25-minute conversation, but let's give it a go. We're looking at 2010 to 2020. That's uh, six years of Barack Obama, the last two of his first uh, administration, and then four more in his second, plus the four years thus far of Donald Trump's administration. But beginning with Barack Obama, his signature deal, the JCPOA, the nuclear deal with Iran, deeply upset America's allies in the region, particularly Saudi Arabia. From that perspective, alienating America's Gulf allies, was it a mistake? I, I, I'm sympathetic to the logic behind the Obama effort to pursue the JCPOA as part of a broader effort to shape Iranian behavior. Uh, It wasn't intended to be the last deal the Americans made with the Iranians. It wasn't intended to be the, 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 the thing that fixed Iran, but it was about trying to create incentives for a different kind of Iranian behavior trying to create a different way of negotiating with the Iranians instead of the pattern we've been in, which is when the Iranians get close to negotiations, they start misbehaving. And the first thing they give away is their most recent misbehavior. Um, I don't know how well they worked with the Gulf allies to persuade them uh, that they weren't just going to give away the store. I don't know how well they worked with Gulf allies to persuade them that the U.S. would remain engaged in their security. There may have been some problems in the execution, but it seems to me in the conceptualization, we're not going to defeat Iran militarily, I don't think, partly because Iran won't really give us a target. They're, they're, they're expert at, at uh, asymmetrical warfare and tensions and all those kinds of things. Um, and if you're not going to do that, then how are you going to change Iranian behavior? And it seems to me that, that, that it was the correct approach to try to test the proposition that you could engage Iran in some sort of diplomatic uh, process. Not that that would fix the problem, but it, would give you, it, but it would give you better tools to manage the problem than being in this shadowy world of proxy wars and, and uh, strikes that nobody can quite attribute. Yeah, and you raised an interesting point there. The The mistake may have been that the Obama regime did not bring the Gulf allies sufficiently on board because it's quite a nuanced approach that Obama took, uh, as you point out, w- with the Iranian deal. And it feels to me like, first, the, the Obama was not good at, at connecting emotionally with, uh, with a lot of uh, leaders of different countries and, and in many places, having an emotional connection to leadership of the United States <clears throat> is really important. What 
what you feel the person's intentions are can be just as important, if not more important, than what the language is. I think Obama always thought language first. Um, but but there also was a fair degree of, of animus, which people who were in the Obama administration felt was sometimes attributed to the president's race. Uh, and that created its own dynamic, the sense that, that, that people in the Gulf uh, had a, a sort of racist take on President Obama. Uh, and I think it just contributed to a, a deterioration on both sides that, that ultimately uh, they said, we're going to do it anyway. And, and the Gulf folks said, we're going to do what we do. And, and you sort of didn't have a partnership when the President left when President Obama left Saudi Arabia on his last visit there. Uh, the thought that kept running through my head is where was there a better wheels up party to say the president had, had left the ground? Was it on the Obama plane or was it in the in the royal court in Saudi Arabia? Syria and the infamous red line on Assad's use of chemical weapons that President Obama drew and then he drew back from. What did that signal to Assad, to Iran, and to the jihadist terror groups? The red line, as you know, was never really something that had been carefully thought out. It was something the president blurted out. Um, it later then took the um, took on the, the mantle of being policy. The, the overall Obama approach was that Syria is not worth a full-scale U.S. confrontation, military confrontation. And if it's not, what short of that should we do? And, and I'm not sure that the administration um, didn't miss a moment when it might have been more deeply involved. Certainly this effort to have uh, U.S.-supported uh, opposition groups training with U.S. military and, and going in, presumably there was some CIA role, uh, that seemed not to have any traction. But I think that the administration, having drawn the conclusion that it didn't want to be drawn into another Middle East war, uh, sort of couldn't figure out a different position. And, and we kept trying to, to be sort of half pregnant, and you can't be half pregnant. And it seems to me that that you know, the, the overall consequence is that the U.S. created this alliance of 70-odd of countries, and they were essentially foiled by an alliance of three countries. And when the most powerful country in the world has an alliance of 70 and is defeated by a, a country with an alliance of three, something's wrong. That alliance of three being? Uh, Syria, Iran, and Russia. Now, the, the Syrian revolution was part of the larger Arab Spring, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Bahrain, all with their citizens in the street as well, calling for freedom and democracy. How do you think that President Obama and America handled the Arab Spring? I think not so well. I think they got a little tied up partly in the rhetoric of it, partly in their own rhetoric. Um, I think that they rushed to conclusions about what was happening. They thought that their words uh, would be more effective uh, than I think their words actually were. As we look back, um, 
I think a lot of us appreciate that there were things we misjudged. But I think as somebody who, you know, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post the day after Mubarak stepped down, saying the military is still there. Um, this hasn't totally changed. There was this sense that, that we, had, we were seeing the arc of history in front of us and we knew the conclusions. And as somebody who in his youth uh, got a PhD in history, the thing that, that has always struck me is that when you're living through history, you don't know what the story is. We don't know what the ending is. And I think there were people who felt they really did know what the ending was. And they were overconfident they knew the ending was. And ultimately, we find ourselves in, in much more similar position now than we were before the Arab Spring. And in some, in some places, certainly my, my Libyan friends say this is worse. Yes, and the argument would be made in, in other places as well, Egypt, uh, certainly, uh, Bahrain, possibly. But was there not, John, a missed opportunity here? Because these were young Arabs who were saying, we want something different. And there was America, in a sense, just pulling back and letting it unfold rather than actively engaging. Uh, states aren't good at engaging with non-state actors for the most part. And you know, the U.S. State Department is great at dealing with other states. It doesn't deal very well with, with non-state groups. And, and somebody told me, I think it's true, that the U.S. Embassy in Cairo did a study uh, after the Arab Spring to see what of the groups they were engaging with in their democracy and governance work that were involved in the Arab Spring, involved in, in trying to, to organize the aftermath to, to Hassan Mubarak. And they found that not a single group that they had been engaging with was actually involved in, in governmental change, despite the fact that, that that was arguably exactly what they were trying to do. Uh, I, I'm not sure that there, that there is a, a really powerful role for the U.S. Um, people tend to ascribe things to so the U.S. did this and that happened, so the U.S. made it happen. But it strikes me that when you're talking about things like domestic political change, we can do some things on the margins. We can perhaps do things with individuals uh, by either engaging with them or not engaging with them. But for the most part, you know, if you think about it like growing a plant, uh, if all the light and all the water comes from one side of the plant, the plant grows up crooked. And a, 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 more democratic system, a more resilient system, has to have real genuine roots in the society from which it comes. And there's no way that 100 U.S. diplomats in an embassy are going to really change the trajectory of that. Overall, then, when we look at Obama's legacy in the Middle East, how would you rate it? Successful, a failure, somewhere in between? He was trying to engage with the Iranians in a constructive way. I think he didn't do anything horribly wrong with Iraq. I think he should have been more engaged in a different way on Libya. Uh, I think Syria was in some ways suffering from neglect. But and that was, to my mind, a mistake that he made. Um, but... Yeah, he, he tried to, to get the U.S.-Israeli relationship on a different kind of footing. It strikes me that a lot of his instincts were right. He was also 
trying to, to get the U.S. from being the overwhelming reference point on every issue in the Middle East. And I think that's also a, a, a useful instinct, given where the American public was. So I think I'd probably give him you know, somewhere between a B and B minus, which is not a great grade, but, but certainly if it's something you're not interested in, something I think a bunch of my kids would say, I'll, I'll take it and move on. Now, look, what's been called America's retreat from the Middle East, if that's a fair description, you could say it begins with President Obama. And curiously, it may be the one Obama legacy that Donald Trump did not try to undo. What do you think? And, you know, the, the, the core to that is that's where the American public is. I mean, when you ask the American public, do you favor fighting a war in Syria? Back during the Obama years, I think the answer was about 10% did. Um, the Iraq war has left a really bitter legacy in, in the minds of many Americans, not only because of the, the number of soldiers who were killed and maimed, but the sense to which people said, we put a trillion dollars into this, and what happened? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing it for people who don't appreciate it and can't seize the opportunities? And I think Obama saw that. He felt that the the fulcrum of the world is shifting toward Asia. And you can't be shifted toward Asia and threats in Asia if you keep getting bogged down in, in endless wars in the Middle East. Now, the piece that I think is, he has consistently missed, he consistently missed, and, and the Trump administration consistently missed, is when your allies in Asia get 80 or 90% of their energy from the Middle East, they see part of your standing in Asia being protecting their interests in the Middle East. And one of the things that terrifies them is this sense that the U.S. in its rush toward Asia is leaving them exposed to the to tender mercies of the Chinese in the Middle East which exposes them to the tender mercies of the Chinese in Asia. So in many ways, while the U.S. public is really tired of fighting wars in the Middle East, Asian governments feel that if the U.S. leaves the Middle East to China, that's going to leave them very, very exposed. I don't know how we're going to work that going forward. I think that the Chinese are reluctant to get too involved militarily. But certainly one of the things we're seeing, and it's consistency between people on the Biden campaign and people uh, in the Trump White House is we have to reduce our military footprint in the Middle East. We cannot continue to be as deeply involved as we are. Whether that military footprint is supplemented by a a sort of diplomatic surge, as as Jake Sullivan on the U.S. side and others have talked about in the uh, Biden camp, whether it's about neglect and the U.S. is just not going to care. And, and, you know, the president's language about we've wasted $8 trillion in the Middle East, the biggest mistake the U.S. ever made to get involved, which doesn't sound like a diplomatic surge to me. It doesn't sound like we're going to use non-military uh, instruments. It sounds like he wants to pull back. But it seems to me that, that there is an overwhelming sense that after the last arguably 30 years since the 91 Gulf War, the U.S. has had an overwhelmingly military approach to the Middle East, and it hasn't advanced a lot of American interests. And I think whatever happens, 
whether it's uh, Trump or, or Biden who wins the next election, there will be a reduced U.S. military footprint because the, the standing forces are just not, not there to, to commit. Now, Donald Trump promised to shake things up, uh, and he certainly has done that. He said he'd pull out of the JCPOA, and that's exactly what he did. Was that a wise thing to do? I don't think you've seen Iranian behavior get better. I don't think he's gotten a lot of credit for doing it. You've seen the Iranians do what the Iranians do when they want to negotiate, which is they, they behave badly. I think it's isolated the U.S. from allies and partners in a way that's undermined pressure that the U.S. might want to bring on Iran for a whole range of things. And, I, and there's not a plan B. And, and you know, the, I think ultimately the president has an ego thing about the JCPOA. He wants to negotiate his own deal. Uh, if he wins re-election, there's little question in my mind he's going to try to negotiate his own deal. But what we've seen from the president's personal negotiations is they're not often very successful. And I think what it leaves you is with a, a less manageable Iran challenge. The Iran challenge doesn't go away. It's just harder to manage. Now, he also promised to get U.S. troops out of Syria and Iraq. You wrote about this recently, and the article was headlined, Stumbling Out of the Middle East is No Better Than Stumbling In. A terrific headline. Does Donald Trump have a coherent policy on troop withdrawal, or is it as simple as a promise he made to his base he'll get the troops out regardless of the consequences? The president not only doesn't really have a, a coherent policy, the president doesn't really have a coherent policy process. He likes to believe that he's the, the sole decider, but he doesn't have a process that feeds up considered options to him that he decides between. Um, you know, the, the, it's easy after less than four years to forget that the president's use of Twitter to say whatever's on his mind without clearing it through legions of experts is a huge departure from where the U.S. presidency's worked for three quarters of a century. And the president likes it that way. He likes having a direct connection to the public. He likes having a direct connection uh, to world leaders. He likes feeling like he's completely his own man. Um, but when you deal with complicated things, that makes it harder to do complicated things because it's hard to get all the gears turning uh, in synchrony. And I think what that does is it diminishes American power because one of the things that, that the U.S. has the unique ability to do is to have 80 or 100 powerful stakeholders from inside the U.S. government, outside the U.S. government, all working in one direction. And, um, and the president doesn't believe that in terms of the military. He doesn't believe that in terms of the broader government, a lot of parts of which he doesn't trust. He doesn't believe it in terms of the international community. He believes it in terms of he says things and people should listen. Legacy for Donald Trump is, is it the deal of the century with you, the UAE and Bahrain normalizing with Israel, and it seems other Arab states poised to come on board. Will that be a success? Will he have done what no other president has and brought lasting peace between Israel and the Palestinians? Well, I haven't seen the Palestinians mentioned much at all in the deal in uh, 
<clears throat> in the deal with the UAE and Bahrain. Um, and I don't think the, the Palestinians accept the, the current framework. And there's not really a framework on offer to the Palestinians. My sense is what the deal will do in the near term and even intermediate term is it will make the Middle East more volatile as the Arab League and the desire to at least have the, the semblance of Arab consensus breaks down. I think the, the rivalries within the Middle East uh, are going to be accelerated. I think some of the proxy wars like you see in, in Libya are likely to heat up more. Uh, and states will say, I'm going to do what's good for me and I'm not going to think about the, the good of the whole. That's basically what, what President Trump said states should do when he spoke to the, at the UN earlier this week. Um, Israel was never at war with either Bahrain or the UAE. There were certainly uh, connections back and forth. Some of those connections will deepen. But I think what, what it really leads to is a, a greater variance between states uh, and greater rivalries between states. I still remember a conversation I had with uh, a friend in Cairo probably in 1992. Um, and she said, you know, well, I support the Arab position. And this was before satellite television changed the world. Uh, but how can you say there's no Arab position at all? anymore. I mean, absolutely no Arab position. And I think that's going to create a, a, a certain amount of, of uh, uncertainty and instability. You could argue that's good, that the Arab position was, was rooted in a, a fantasy and, and myths, and it's good to shatter them. But working out how these smaller states will deal with each other, especially when the U.S. is saying we're not going to manage the region anymore, I think leads you to more surprises, uh, somewhat more adventurism, and we'll see where the where the chips fall. Now, finally, John, should Joe Biden win the presidency, do you anticipate a significant shift in the trajectory of U.S. foreign policy in MENA? You know, what I think we'll mostly see is the return of the U.S. government as an institution. Um, one of the really striking things about the Trump presidency <clears throat> has been the, the distrust of the intelligence services, the distrust of the State Department, the weakening of the State Department, um, the, the Defense Department becoming increasingly wrapped up within itself. And certainly the, the interagency process has broken down. And, and you know, a friend of mine who used to work in the, the Bush 43 White House said, before I was in government, I always thought interagency was an adjective and not a noun. But the fact is there's the interagency, this big interagency process that makes everything work. The interagency has completely broken down in the Trump administration. I think in the Biden administration, partly because it'll be staffed by so many veterans from the Obama administration, will resurrect the interagency process. You will see the U.S. having, I think, a policy that is articulated with a lot of the, the, the narrower ambitions that you see coming from the Trump administration, but to execute them in a much more deliberate and effective way than you've seen coming out of the Trump administration. It's, of course, an open question. It's an open question how much that will lead to, to very different outcomes. 
because uh, as I said, I think the U.S. does not control everything that happens in the Middle East, despite the ambitions of some Americans to do it and, and the ambitions of some American allies that the U.S. does it in the region. But it seems to me that the biggest change you're going to have is you're going to have the entire U.S. government singing from the same sheet of music. When the president speaks, it will be because there's a process that leads up to it. And I really think that, that as a, a world phenomenon, a president who tweets independently of his entire government and says whatever is on his mind, and the government doesn't even know, does that represent our policies and our new policies or our old policies, should I ignore it? Getting rid of that, I think, is going to have a huge impact on the effectiveness of the U.S. in the world. It won't make the U.S. completely effective all the time. But I think we've seen a, a, a diminution in American power because the president has all of these tools at his disposal and he either doesn't trust them or doesn't know how to use them. And that reduces the U.S. significantly on the world stage. John, thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. It's good to talk to you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was John Alterman, a senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.